Cheryl's uh, preaching text this morning comes to us from John's Gospel. It's actually, it, it's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible story. Because it's a story about what power has always meant and what it shouldn't mean. And what it does mean in a world reimagined. So listen up. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the father or the mother. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he got up from the table and he took off his robe and he tied a towel around himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, well, you should wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Little children, I am with you a little bit longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the people, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I leave you with a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Please love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. May God bless the reading and the hearing of those words.
I am a huge fan of the Apple TV series, Ted Lasso. And now it's a low bar because I don't have cable and I barely even know how to turn the television on. But early in the pandemic, Ted Lasso was one of those shows that I saw a lot of people from really diverse parts of my life posting about and they were raving about it. They weren't wrong. I enjoyed season one and season two, and now I'm somewhere in the middle of season three. No spoilers, I promise. But while watching the credits for a recent episode, I saw a credit that said, starring God as herself. Yes, the voice of God had a speaking role, which I completely missed because it was only one line and because it was a woman's voice. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I missed the voice of God because I was limited to how I was listening for it. Yet I would be the first person in the theological argument to tell you that God is infinite, God transcends gender, and any boundaries we place on God. Because God is simply beyond what a human mind can imagine. Yet I missed that one line because when I was sitting there being entertained, God did not come in a booming baritone, shouting a command from the great beyond. It actually came in that episode from a whimsical feminine voice joking about squares and triangles during a psychedelic trip. Yeah, to say it. <laughs> and I wondered how much of our perception of God is influenced by the gender pronouns we use by default and the cultural stereotypes we cannot unsee. How often do we not hear the voice of God because it's simply a different voice than we're listening for? After all, as Carter said, the purest voice of God is the voice of love. And today on Mother's Day, the feminine voice of love deserves its own shout out. Tuning into this voice isn't something new. It's been done for thousands of years, but it's one that's been lost to modernity. Not because with modernity we've gained knowledge. No, it's because we get so stuck in modernity on what needs to be believed, we forget the incredible power of the things that can only be perceived. Throughout cultures and religious traditions, the divine feminine enjoyed wonderful representation. I could do a whole sermon on it. Sophia wisdom has always been feminized. The Shekinah, the spirit of God in Judaism, is a feminine presence with feminine pronouns that always connected the heavenly and earthly realms at the most sacred of times, in the most sacred of ways, in the most sacred of places. And it was no doubt that the Shekinah was a precursor to the Christian Holy Spirit touted by Christianity. And in the Christian tradition, while the Jesus of history was by all accounts a human male, the Jesus of faith lives on through spirit, which has no gender. Even the most patriarchal and hardcore theologians ascribe that God is neither male nor female, God is neither north nor south, east nor west. Yet these pronouns, after years and years in church and in popular culture of only hearing, hearing he, 
has masculinized God. And we've made God into a human person who is male with human qualities and tendencies. And in doing so, we've simply limited God. We've limited what God could be by making God into this he. So much of life and so much of faith depends on what we choose to see and choose to hear. And in the spirit of Mother's Day, I want you to see the essence of God in maternal love and in the feminine quality of the human experience, whatever that might be like for you. Love, compassion, and nourishment are some of these qualities, and they're all in display in that reading from John's Gospel today. It's a reading traditionally read on Thursday of Holy Week, a day known as Maundy Thursday. And that name is so confusing. True confession, I didn't go to divinity school till I was in my 40s. So when I heard about Maundy Thursday, I kept on looking for a strange symbolism. Was it Monday Thursday? Well, maybe that made no sense, but perhaps it inferred some high symbolism that was just beyond me. Or was Maundy a derivative for the word mourning? Maybe it meant sadness. After all, Jesus had this wonderful, nice last Passover supper with his friends, and some of these friends at the table betray him, and then the rest of them abandon him, and then he goes off to be killed. Well, that qualifies for mourning, right? (laughs) But Monty comes from Latin, mandatum, which means a command, an order, a mandate. Here is this mandate, to love as Jesus loved. It's a commandment that is so important that not only does Jesus emphasize it by naming its importance, he demonstrates it by washing dirty, dusty feet, sharing a critical meal, and issuing these parting words before he goes on trial and is executed. Basically, he shows through his actions and his words that if we learn anything, we must learn to love and care for each other as humbly and as simply as Jesus did. It seems so easy. I have a colleague who's a school chaplain, and he says he loves teaching this lesson in his world religion class. He said teenagers have a really low tolerance for BS, and a command to love one another holds muster even to the most skeptical people with the lowest BS meters. It meets muster at the most skeptical of dinner tables, including the dinner tables in our homes. Imagine a family dinner in our society today, if you even have a family dinner. That's going by the wayside, I think. Kids jockeying for place, angling for a favorite dish, putting away their phones, please, yet acknowledging a world outside the doors of their home where everything seems to be falling apart, A world where kids are angry at the adults in their life, where the adults at the dinner table might be angry at the kids, and where threats of school violence and global warming are real. It is at this table that they are fed, and at this table where they are forgiven, and at this table where they are loved. It is so beautiful and so simple, it almost belies the concept to to connect this to a mandate which seems so harsh. Yet this nurturing love is harder than it seems. 
dinner tables aren't always lovey-dovey. I mean, think of the table we just learned about in John's gospel. I mean, think of Jesus. After all these people who he nurtured and washes their dusty feet, they all abandon him or betray him. And he didn't say, damn, I can't believe I washed the feet of those guys and they treat me like this. He knew them. He knew their faults. Yet he still loved them and forgave them. In doing so, he also emphasized to them that they were really worthy to receive love. They were worthy, just as they are at the table, dirty, grumpy, and about to do some bad stuff. Theologian Nadia Boltz Weber said, Perhaps Jesus is saying to them, Feel that stretch in your bellies. That lack of hunger, the taste of bread and figs that still coats your tongue. Do you feel the cool of the air on your clean feet after that film of dust was removed after a day of walking? This is how love feels. The strings attached to Jesus' love, not to meet my needs, but to meet one another's needs. Through loving us, Jesus models how we should love one another. He is, in short, an archetype, an example of mothering, of a nurturing love. I work every day in a behavioral health hospital. I get plenty of earfuls about mothering. Those jokes about mothers and mental health are ubiquitous. Even my fictional hero, Ted Lasso, said, boy, I love meeting people's mothers. It's like reading an instruction manual for their therapy. Every day I get stories about mothers whose children may have been better off raised by wolves, and I get stories about mothers who are overprotective, overzealous, mothers who are provocative, or mothers who are so wrapped in their own world and their own ego, they don't see their children, not see as in physically see, but they don't see their kids' presence beyond their own ego. I also hear painful stories about mothers who are absent and equally painful stories about mothers who've been alienated or ignored by their children. I get stories about amazing mothers whose children's illnesses have prevented them from having a full relationship with them, ever. And I witness the pain of relationships that never reach their potential. These are extreme stories, of course, but many of the stories that I encounter could have been any mother and any child. And it makes me realize that I, too, could fill a book with the many things I got wrong as both a daughter and a mother. So many times I wished for do-overs. About a month ago, I heard one of my favorite NPR reporters, Mary Louise Kelly, the host of All Things Considered, um, address parenting do-overs. She was talking about her new book entitled, It Goes So Fast, A Year of No Do-Overs. It's a book about the year before her eldest son goes to college, and she plans to take time off and be present for this year because she'd missed so much in previous years because All Things Considered airs every day from 4 to 6 p.m. in the afternoon. 
In her year off, she didn't get any do-overs. Her sons kept growing, and while it was her time off, she was writing a book, and it kept her out of war zones, and the year just seemed to take on its own momentum of joys, losses, and good and bad surprises that happened in life. She poignantly admitted, sometimes the only thing that gives me solace is the knowledge that we're all trying and failing and getting up and trying again to be true to ourselves and true to the people that we love. She concludes that mothers simply only need to be good enough. She says that succeeding, whatever that might mean, is not only elusive, but it demands constant renewal. It's like a mountain that keeps growing ahead of you as you hike it. If you want to succeed at mothering and nurturing, you may never get there. It's an impossible standard. Who can meet that? Over the winter, I had a wonderful dinner with a favorite former colleague. His mother died last summer, and I was checking in on him how he was doing in his new job, what life was like six months after this really hard death. They had a fraught relationship that was only intensified during her slow demise from cancer. I was like, come on, honestly, how are you doing? He goes, oh. Cheryl, you are not going to believe this. I saw a psychic. (laughs) Now, I must have had an incredulous look on my face because he not only called me out on my look on my face, he asked me to withhold judgment. And I don't think of myself as a judgy person, but somehow the psychic just put me there. So I listened. Without any prompting, the psychic he visited seemed to intuit that his mother had died and that she had a message for him. I was like, well, tell me, tell me, what was the message? The psychic said that his mother said to tell him, I forgive you. I'm so proud of you. And I love you very, very much. And this jovial friend, who's really kind of tongue-in-cheek most of the time, teared up. And I I just took it all back, and I I sat back and I said, you know, he fully believes that this psychic has connected him with his late mother from beyond the grave, and this was the message that he needed to hear. I supported him 100% in that belief because in that moment, he found such comfort. Yet the skeptic in me pondered, if I were making my living as a psychic and I'd somehow just nailed that a middle-aged mother had died, (laughs) telling them these four critical sentences, I might have a pretty good chance of hitting a home run. (laughs) Well, he got his money's worth. That's all I'm going to say. After all the mixed messages and challenging moments in his mother's lifetime, this was all he needed to know. Likewise, Reading Mary Louise Kelly's book last week brought this message home in a different way. Perhaps because my youngest child's about to graduate from high school and because Kelly seemed like one of those moms who had it all together. I mean, an NPR show, two kids, you know, all over the world, speaking engagements. 
bunkers and war zones. As Kelly's son graduates from high school, and as her year of no do-overs comes to an end, she poignantly reflects on her year and her motherhood journey with her son. She says, our bond has changed and stretched and has been tested, sometimes sorely tested, over 18 years. It's painful. And she concludes, but perhaps the pain is the cracking of the walls as our rooms grew. Perhaps the pain is the cracking of the walls as the rooms grew. We all grow. And she continues, all I want to say to my sons boils down to this. I am proud of you. I love you. Never give up. Never give in. Keep going, my beautiful boys. Keep going. Yes, Mary Louise, it does go too fast. As I look at my own place as a daughter of an elderly mother and the mother of my own young adults, I think of all the things I worried about, all the things that caused me angst, all the mistakes I wish I could do over. And I realize and accept that the only thing that really matters in the whole experience, forwards and backwards, are the lessons of love. Love that can feed hungry bodies, love that can dry tears, love that can remove scary monsters, and love that can shine light from miles away. And in the case of my own mother, a light that still can shine through advanced Alzheimer's and a complete inability to speak. Mary Louise finished her book, Leave, and returned to covering the war in Ukraine last spring. And when she was alone in this war zone, she reflected on the force majeure of maternal love and its place in an unending cycle of love. She says a mother's love is such a powerful force, it can wire courage across thousands of miles straight into a war zone. Being a mother means paying it forward by loving one another as God has loved us and having the courage to tune into that voice of divine love when everything else in the world is demanding our attention elsewhere. This love moves through time from generation to generation. It's the mandate that we love one another as we were loved, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. The best mothering moments are fleeting, but they're also eternal. They are eternal love. They connect, connect us to divine love, and that is the force that sustains the world. May we know it, may we feel it, and may we keep passing it on. Amen.
I knew you 